Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, you children of the night, you offspring of fall. Come, come in. It's warm and flickery in here. You've found your way to the nook to Tales to Terrify. We've got a brace of tales tonight, a poem, some talk, and, of course, the fellowship of the season. Come, doff your wraps, settle into a comfy chair, dip something warm. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and tonight, as Halloween dwindles in our rearview mirror, we will have an evening of gentle easy-going, chilly horror. First, I want to mention two books. One is now out, the other is about to be. The first, Fear the Reaper, is out from Crystal Lake Publishing. The other, from Great Old Ones Publishing, is Canopic Jars, Tales of Mummies and Mummification. Fear the Reaper mounts 21 tales and a poem, on a 402-page frame, the stories deal with death, the life of death, the form death takes, and the lengths to which people will go to avoid death. Fear the Reaper is available on Amazon for fourteen ninety nine on inked paper and via Kindle on your screen of choice for four ninety nine. It is a terrific collection by some of the best in the field. I don't yet know much about the gathered tales in Canopic Jars, Tales of Mummies and Mummification. I haven't received my copy. But I am secure in suggesting that you look into this volume. The table of contents includes some truly fine authors. Well, here, just a few names. More later. Gord Rollo, Brett Savory, 
Tracy L. Carbone, M.J. Preston, Christy Peterson Schoonover, Philip C. Perrin, Gregory L. Norris, and a couple dozen more of their ilk and kind. And there is an up-and-comer called H.P. Lovecraft in there, too. Yes, I'm in both of these, so this is not a fully altruistic endorsement. My story, Instructions on the Use of the M57 Clacker, I've mentioned before, is part of the mix in Fear the Reaper. And Canopic Jars has my tale, Jars, in it. A story of kids and of the horrors we all know are in the walls. That one will be available on and after November 8th. Good tale-telling for the fall. More anon. And now, without further fuss, here is Mike Allen, now with 100% more Shale and Hurlbert, and the October-November tour of the Abattoir, and a walk or two through various woods. Mike? Shallon? Greetings, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to a new installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, and Shallon Hurlbert is rejoining me for this recording. Say hi, Shallon. Hello, everyone. Shallon and I have just watched two obscure and similarly themed movies that Shallon picked for us to watch because he's very good at that. And now we're going to talk to you about their merits that probably make them worth seeking out, and also their failures that should cause you to keep your expectations a little lower. Yes. And the movies are called Yellow Brick Road and The Corridor. And if you're searching for those online, Yellow Brick Road is either all one word or Yellow Brick is one word, depending on the sites you look for. Not long ago at a lunch session, Shallon told me about these movies and got me interested in seeing them, and I'm very glad that I did. They both share essentially the same structure, although their introductions are different. Different plots, same plot structure. And they're both about journeys into madness. They happen to be actual physical journeys. In the corridor, it's almost set up as like a cabin in the woods style horror film in that they go to a cabin in the woods. But that's about the only uh, trope that stays true to that form. In Yellow Brick Road, they actually go to a trail and spend the entire movie walking down a trail. The Corridor is essentially a perversion of a buddy movie. It's an all-male cast. There's only one significant female role. The occasion is a get-together among four high school buddies, and it is being done as a favor to one of the members of the group whose mother died under very strange circumstances that we get just a snippet of at the very beginning. They make a discovery out in the woods. It seems to be at first as something very beneficial and kind of spiritually awakening, but it actually turns out to be pretty sinister. They find this area in the woods which 
has sort of an invisible, it's hard to describe the way it looks. It's a transparent, shimmering structure about roughly rectangular shape when they find it. It's kind of a force field effect. Right. And when they enter it, it obviously has some euphoric effect. They feel really good while they're in there. They can also sort of read each other's minds. It expands their consciousness. Everybody but our main character decides that they want to stake their claim on it and market it in some way. That it might be the ticket out of their unsatisfactory lives. There's a second level to the movie that is all about how none of these characters have lived up to the potential that they imagined they were going to have back then that informs how the more horrific elements of the story start to play out. Now, before we get too deep into that one, let me skip to The Yellow Brick Road. The Yellow Brick Road is about an expedition by a group of researchers and journalists and at least one scientist. Well, there's a behavioral scientist, a forester. It's really led by a husband and wife who are authors. And it sort of hints without telling you that they've authored other books in the genre of exploring mysterious locales and dangerous places. And the idea is that they are trying to follow the path down which an entire town in New Hampshire disappeared in the 40s. Only one survivor returned, and we get to hear a sort of grainy recording of that survivor's testimony at the very beginning of the movie. He says something to the effect of, I left them behind, they're all dead, they kept walking, can you hear it, can you hear it? Why won't it stop? The movie introduces us to a fairly large cast. If you know anything about the logic of horror movies, it also means that it's a large pool of characters to start out with so that some of them can die off sooner. Right. (laughs) In both movies, The Corridor and Yellow Brick Road, what these characters physically encounter in the woods starts to drastically affect their mental stability. Because of the combination of intriguing basic concepts and some reasonably good acting, these movies do achieve a fair amount of suspense in portraying these descents into madness. The main weakness of them in both cases is the very last five minutes. We have two movies here where the filmmakers obviously didn't see the way to bring these intriguing concepts to a satisfying conclusion. (laughs) They give them what I I refer to as the Michael Crichton ending. Michael Crichton in his early career wrote many, many good novels that just puked up an ending to stop writing. I mean, like the Andromeda Strain, he builds up the virus and it's about to have these world-changing conflicts and then it floats away. Well, we don't really know how to end, how to arrive at an ending, so we're just going to throw a neat visual at you. We're going to to abandon all logic and throw some creepy looking visuals at you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
I was so mad at both of these movies the first time I watched them when I got to the end that I kind of put them off of my radar for a long time. And then I, I think what happened was I, I put them back in my queue because I didn't recognize the names. And so I watched The Corridor again, and I was like, you know, despite that last few minutes, this movie's actually pretty good. The buildup is pretty intense. Why don't we talk about The Corridor for a little bit? I'm very interested in mental illness and the way mental illness is portrayed in film because I myself have uh, a lot of experience with the mentally ill. So there are things that piss me off about a lot of movie portrayals of mental illness. But one thing that this movie did pretty well is the main character, Tyler, has some form of mental illness. They don't name what it is. It's just clear that he's he's got it. He talks about his treatment, his time in the hospital. And he takes medication. Right. There are several really clever things about The Corridor in terms of how it portrays the uh, madness unfolding. One example is that Tyler, who is taking medication because of his previous episodes, has immunity, partial immunity to the effects of The Corridor. He's aware of those feelings and the things that are going on, but he's immune to their debilitating effects. The portrayal of the psychic abilities is pretty fascinating, too. When the men discover that they can, quote, hear, unquote, each other at distances, which may or may not be telepathy or may be some actual physical effect of the phenomenon, they end up knowing each other's thoughts. There's a fascinating bit, and I remember when Shallon first told me about this, I believe this was the thing that intrigued Yeah, this is where you told me to stop. You wanted to see it. Two of the characters start playing rock, paper, scissors in order to see who's going to go out to the corridor. the corridor in the woods and take over watch. They each keep coming up with the exact same hand signal you know, every single time. Once they realize what is happening, they keep doing it and become consumed with it. Right, entranced by it. It's a great and scene where another one of the characters then happens on them later as they've apparently been sitting there doing this. Blood streaming down their faces. Whenever this stuff happens, their noses bleed. Sort of the movie shorthand for brain damage. Or something yeah. The bloody yeah. nose. <laughs> I was struck by how well it was coming together despite some very obvious signs of a low budget. There's one actor who's kind of stuck with a bad wig that you sort of have to get used to. <laughs> and the effect of the corridor itself, what it looks like, is clearly pretty simple. But what I was thinking was, wow, okay, here's somebody who decided to create a story that would work within their limitations and is doing a really good job of it. It's definitely suspenseful. It has that problem that many, many horror movies have of putting together a group of characters who are not necessarily easy to invest yourself in. Right. <laughs> the narrative purpose to that is to have people together who have some friction between them so that the friction can then take off in horrific directions right. as this does. The trip that they went on was a sort of we're burying the hatchet and we're closing wounds and making amends and so they take it to their most horrific conclusions. If you see this one, you need to be ready to brace yourself to forgive the ending because it makes almost no sense. <laughs> to use a metaphor, it's as though the writers went, grabbed all the loose ends and tied them into one knot all at once with a great big tug. And, and just kind of said, trust us, this solves everything. The end. <laughs> now, the Yellow Brick Road 
sort of does that with the ending, but we'll get to that in a little bit. In a slightly different way. Now, the Yellow Brick Road plays on kind of the same fears that the Corridor does. A primal fear for us higher-thinking primates seems to be losing control of our minds and having, and having the veneer of civilization stripped exactly, away exactly. in the process. Definitely happens in the corridor, and the Yellow Brick Road is all about this, too. The uh, thing that really gets me about it in the Yellow Brick Road is that it happens slowly and more insidiously. I agree. In the, the corridor, it's more like, bang, my brain is way out of whack all of a sudden. Although I like that about the yeah. corridor. Well, I, yeah, I, yeah, I like that it's, we just sort of plunged right into it. <laughs> in the, the Yellow Brick Road, I found that their descent into madness more scary to me because it, it's a slow, like, you start changing subtly so that you don't even notice it happening, and then by the time you do, it's too late. Yellow Brick Road shares a little bit in common with Blair Witch Project in that we have a group out in the woods. At first, they think they know what they're doing, but then their instruments stop making any sense, and they start hearing strange noises. Although, here's where it's very different. Our group of hikers starts hearing is music. 1940s jazz, to be specific. And it gets louder and louder and louder the further they travel. And at first, they're really drawn to it. Really intrigued. Like, where could this possibly be coming from? What This might be something that's going on that, that drew the original group that disappeared to them. Right. And there's a sense that they themselves are being seduced on a level that they're perhaps not aware of. And then you get to, I suppose, what you could call the addiction phase, where the music has actually gotten very unpleasant. And they all acknowledge this, but for every person who says we need to go back there's somebody who's saying no no we have to keep going and of course like mike said their instruments are all getting screwed up and so even if they want to go back they're finding that all the readings that they took the two cartographers they don't add up to the same amount of distance backwards as it did forward so they don't even know if turning around will help them by this time, the trail is sort of not even a trail. It's just petered into blank areas in the woods and walkable surfaces, but no trail trail. The movie ends up having a few things in common with John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. You have a location the characters travel to that they're then not really able to get out of. And the ending also is a little similar, too, come to think oh, of it. Oh, yeah, actually it is. <laughs> Except but, it makes sense in In the Mouth of Madness. Yes, yeah, yeah, it does make a lot more sense. The space in Yellow Brick Road becomes hostile to the people traveling through, which is what I'm really really getting at. There's a sense that whatever they have gotten themselves into, it's so innately evil that it's like a predatory mouth slowly closing over them that isn't going to let them out. The music and the proximity to it and whatever the supernatural agent is that is causing the music, it starts having the effect of making the characters more and more irritable and emotional. And finally, a, a fight breaks out between two siblings the cartographers yes that ends up in one of them rather gruesomely dead and things don't really get better for this group from there <laughs> yeah from, if you're familiar with surface tension water that kind of thing the death of the sister is the point at which you poke the surface tension and all the water runs out 
There is definitely a sense that there is another force involved that, right. is, that is bringing this about. The explanation of what the force is is where the movie ultimately breaks down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, it leaves it completely unexplained what that force is. It just kind of shows you and leaves you to go, well, I kind of get it or I kind of don't. The ending is trying to go for a sort of existential recursive, there's no way out sort of effect, but it doesn't really work. Yeah, it does that whole, like, all right, you've beaten all the odds and made it to the end, but your prize is that you never escape. It's horrible. <laughs> and it's unfortunate, too, because up until maybe about the last 10 minutes or so of the movie, they does a really good job of kind of chronicling this slow, horrible disintegration. One of the more fascinating scenes to me was one where one of the more competent characters, the forest stranger has left the group and one of the other hikers has come with him and they're going to try and forge their own way out but the music continues to follow them and there comes a point where the ranger essentially tells the woman who is with him i'm going crazy i don't think i'm going to be able to control myself much longer you're going to have to tie me up and kill me and I thought that was fascinating. It really shows you the kind of length that a person might go to to retain their last shred of humanity. He sees himself about to become a monster, and what he says is, oh, the things that I've seen myself do to you, it, they're terrible, and I just want you to tie me up and break my neck and get it over with, because what I would do to you is far worse than description merits. And she's understandably distraught about this. There's another similarly strong development that happens not long after that. And then you can really tell that the writers, the filmmakers, have sort of lost their direction. It results in a drawn-out montage that feels like it's supposed to be poignant, but it actually gets sort of annoying. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I found myself thinking, you know, just shut up and die already. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Two, two horrific movies with horrific endings that we still recommend. And I know it's sort of our job to judge them harshly on here, but try not to judge them too harshly, because they're actually fun. Judge them harshly? I don't have a problem with judging them harshly. <laughs> but, but, but let them inspire you, too, because there's some cool stuff going on in there. And if you seek these out, let us know what you think. And in the meantime, we will continue grubbing like the characters in Yellow Brick Road, for other little morsels to share with you from under rocks before we eat them. <laughs> <laughs> and so, until next time, farewell and stay scared. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Shalyn. And by the way, both Yellow Brick Road and The Corridor are available on Netflix online. So, when you get home tonight... <laughs> A few reminders. Eugene Foster can still use our help. Please consider giving directly to her via PayPal. Use the address on our homepage or on our Facebook page. Or go directly to Amazon and buy her books. Either choice will pay you back.
also, and it is a truly sad state of affairs that we keep having to create fundraising events for authors and their families, but we do. It's the nature of the business. It's the time in which we live. Rick Hautala died suddenly this past March, and while he was a successful author with lots of books and tales out here in the world working for him and his family, that doesn't necessarily mean they had a good fiscal cushion against this kind of sudden horror. Rick is one of the authors in Fear the Reaper, uh, and between now and Sunday, November 3rd, all the profit from Fear the Reaper, paperback and ebook, will be paid to Rick's wife, Holly. If you've already bought a copy, get one for a friend, a colleague. Buy a few copies, sell them, or hold on to them for posterity. And thanks. Fiction. We have two shortish tales tonight. The first is Apartment 415, and it's by S.A. Partridge. Ms. Partridge, or Sally, as her friends know her, was born in Cape Town, South Africa. She still lives there and is an author of young adult fiction, novels, and short stories. She was named one of Mail and Guardian's 200 Young South Africans in 2011. That's an annual distinction awarded to notable South Africans under the age of 35. In 2007, her debut novel, The Goblet Club, won the South African Broadcasting Corporation U Magazine I Am a Writer competition. It also won the MER Prize for Best Youth Novel and the MNET Via Africa Awards the following year. Her second novel, Fuse, was shortlisted for the Percy Fitzpatrick Prize for Youth Fiction, awarded by the South African English Academy, and in 2012 it was an IBBY honor book. IBBY is the International Board of Books for Young People, by the way. Her Dark Poppy's Demise was awarded the MER Prize for Best Youth Novel at the Media 24 Literary Awards. And her fourth novel for young people, Sharp Edges, as well as a collection of her short stories, came out this year. As a journalist, Sally has contributed to publications including The Call Sheet, The Event Itch, Pop Matters, Dazed and Confused, and Music Review. Here now is S.A. Partridge's Apartment 415. The world outside the window was expectant. A black cat streaked across the gutter onto the roof, stopping only for the tiniest second to shine its yellow eyes into the room before darting away. Rain was threatening. The greens were brighter, the rough red bricks of the neighbouring apartment block more stark. In the distance, Table Mountain loomed. A neat row of ants marched through a crack in the wall, seeking shelter. The whole world seemed to be in on a secret. Anton was good at keeping secrets. He watched, noticed things. How a man would turn around and look behind him as he walked, like he had a guilty conscience. The child that took something that didn't belong to him when he thought no one else was looking. 
From his window in the fourth floor, Anton saw everything. He saw their true colors. When the rain began to spit against the glass, he sighed and turned away. His vigil was over. The rain sounded like hundreds of fingertips tapping at his window, drowning out the sound of mice devouring the floorboards. Anton shared the apartment with Jessica. Loud, messy, haphazard, pretty Jess. She could win his forgiveness for her feelings with just one look from her big brown eyes. They only ever ran into each other when their mealtimes coincided, and her appearance would always surprise him. Not because he wasn't expecting her, but because the way her appearance kept changing. One day she would be blonde, the next a brunette with shadowy makeup. The only constant was her eyes. They were his favourite part of her, and if he had to pick a word to describe them, it would be mahogany, deep and rich like the wood. They didn't mind each other. The flat was cheap and falling apart, so neither of them felt obliged to keep it clean. This suited Jessica, whose lifestyle was rather anarchic. She was hardly around when she was in. She spent most of her time in her room listening to music. She loved music. Anton, whose life was far simpler and less chaotic, didn't mind either way, as long as she was in it. As soon as the rain came, the sky darkened, bringing with it early night. Anton put the kettle on. It would be his 17th cup of coffee since Jessica had last been home four days ago. Above him, the fluorescent bulb flickered. It wasn't like her to disappear. For all her irregular coming and going, she was a habitual lover of her own bed, despite its old stains and lumpiness. He thought about the last time he had seen her, dressed in cut-off shorts and a mesh top, about to go out to see a new band. Don't wait up for me, she said, halfway out the door. I won't. You will anyway, and I wish you wouldn't. I'll be fine. He put his cup away and decided he'd wait a while before taking up the count again. A streetlight blinked into life outside the kitchen window, making him jump, and he moved to the battered couch. If he had fallen asleep, Anton didn't remember doing so. He was sitting on the couch facing the door, which was still locked on the inside. Had he been waiting up late again? The room smelled damp from the window being open all night, and the sharpness of the cold stung his nose. He didn't get up. It was going to be a cloudy, miserable day. Day five of his lonely vigil. But Anton clung to the hope that she would return. She always did. He cast a weary eye around the apartment, at the mildewed walls and towers of dishes building up on the kitchen counter. It would have to be cleaned up sooner or later. The thought didn't stir him to action. He was pining, spending his days staring out of the window. Moving away meant that he might miss something vital, something he hadn't noticed before. The thought made him shudder. He stretched widely, but stopped mid-yawn, startled by the unmistakable squeak of bed springs. Jessica's bed was ancient, yet she refused to invest in a new one. Every time she sat up on it or got up, the strain of the bed springs could be heard from any room in the apartment. He waited, but heard nothing more. Anton rose and took a few furtive steps towards Jessica's room. Her door was closed and her toxic green keep-out sign glared at him warningly. He shot a glance towards the front door. The key was still on the inside where he had left it. He inched forward and closed his hand around the door handle. It felt cold and stiff, but that meant nothing. When it opened, it moaned like everything else in the apartment. She was there, sitting on the bed with her head bowed. Her hair hung loose and ragged, like unraveled rope. 
The curtains were closed, giving the room a murky quality, as if everything in it was underwater. "'Jessica?' he asked tentatively. She lifted her head slowly, and once again her appearance took him aback. Her eyes were swollen with tears and underlined with dark rings. Her bottom lip trembled. Anton took a few cautious steps towards her. "'What happened?' She shook her head frantically, lifting her face to meet his gaze. I don't know. I shouldn't be here. This is all messed up. What do you mean? You live here. What's wrong? Again she shook her head, and one hand travelled into her hair to grip the roots. Anton took another step forward, and for a moment she looked panicked. Don't, she said. And then she was gone. He stared at the empty bed for a few moments as her words resounded in his mind. After about two minutes of this, Anton realised that for the first time since he had heaved the monstrosity up four flights of stairs, the bed hadn't squeaked, which he thought odd. With that thought, he went back to the living room, closing the door carefully behind him. Jessica didn't appear again until the following week. Anton had been grocery shopping, a task he performed with the same mathematical efficiency he adopted in every other aspect of his life. Coffee... Twelve oranges, toothpaste, newspaper, milk. He counted the oranges into a bowl and arranged them so that he could make out all twelve with one glance. By midday, there were eleven oranges in the bowl. He upended the pungent spheres onto the counter and counted twice. There were still eleven. He opened Jessica's door to find her lying on the bed, staring at the ceiling. Orange pulp and rinds littered the floor and the room was alive with a fresh citrus haze, as if she had spritzed the juice into the air. She turned towards him as he entered. "'I can peel it, but I can't eat it,' she said miserably. He stared at the ruined fruit all over the floor. "'You seem to have killed it.' She frowned at his poor attempt at humour. "'I can try and make you some soup,' he said. She shook her head. "'Won't work. It'll just end up on the floor.' "'What happened to you?' he asked. "'She ignored his eyes and stared up at the ceiling. "'She sighed deeply. "'I keep coming back here. "'Sometimes I'm at the pier and sometimes I'm nowhere.' "'The pier?' he asked. "'I remember being at the club, listening to the band play. "'The music was just lovely and I left shortly after they finished. "'I still had a beer in my hand and I walked to the pier. "'That's all I remember. "'I don't even know why I was there.' Anton felt useless and awkward. She looked miserable. There was no spark of life in her eyes. Her arms hung limp at her sides like a defeated soldier. He wrung his hands. He opened his mouth to speak, then closed it again. He could never think of the right thing to say in front of her. She didn't speak again, but disappeared once more, like a hologram blinking out, and he spent an unhappy hour cleaning orange pulp off the walls and floor, all the while thinking of something he could say when she returned. As the cold isolation of winter drifted to other parts of the world, paving the way for the warmth of spring, Anton felt like he was losing his grip on his secret. People began to emerge from their nests as the sun came out, feeling the need to socialise. Jessica's disappearance became pronounced as her friends sprung out of hibernation, wanting to invite her to the beach and cocktail bars. These visitors were like an ever-present buzzing in his ears. Keeping them away was a full-time job. She only appeared once during all this hubbub. Anton had just closed the door on yet another faceless friend looking for information when she strode into the kitchen. Who was that? she asked. 
someone looking for work, he said quickly, pleasantly surprised to see her outside her bedroom. It's amazing how they get in here, she said, rattling the coffee tin. Oh, God, I love If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I love the smell of coffee. Won't you have some? Of course. She moved aside so he could busy himself at the counter, measuring four heaped spoons of ground coffee into a cup. It was going to taste awful. He smiled at her warmly, then turned back to the task. He hadn't looked at her properly since her return. She was still wearing the cut-off shorts and the mesh top from the night she had disappeared, but in the light he could see her face had changed slightly. Her eyes were deeper, darker. Anton didn't stare into them for too long. Jessica leaned over his shoulder to take a long sniff of his coffee. That's going to taste like tar, she said happily. He took a sip and coughed. This place needs more pot plants, she announced, looking around. Okay, and wind chimes. No problem. She beamed at him and twirled around back to her room. Anton didn't see her again until only a month later, once all the changes she wanted were in place. He had purchased little ceramic pots for each counter in the apartment and placed a different plant in each one. Despite having no artistic talent, he painted the wind chimes himself in bright colours and patterns and hung them over the door and at every window. With the remaining paint, he decorated the ceramic pots with little flowers and stars. When he was done exploring this newfound creative streak, the apartment blazed with colour. Most of the mess was gone, although there was nothing he could do about the damp that was creeping up the walls at an alarming rate, despite the weather. He put it out of his mind. In the past, he had spoken to Jessica maybe once, twice a week, and only about trivialities like the electricity bill. Now, they were beginning to develop a proper relationship, and he delighted in the little things she did, like poking at a wind chime or the way she was learning to anticipate his peculiar habits. He felt understood for the first time, 
as if someone had entered his world and didn't want to run away screaming. All their interaction took place in the apartment, but he didn't care. The outside world couldn't offer him as much joy as a single moment with her could. Spring was good for one thing. He planted a little garden in a ledge outside the kitchen window, and it flourished. He planted fragrant lavender and sweet peas, and between them snowdrop lilies appeared of their own accord. The smells wafted into the kitchen like perfume, although the latter flower didn't bring with it the reaction that he had expected. Jessica crushed a lily between her pale fingers. These grow in graveyards. I didn't plant them, it's just a weed, he explained. That's the point, isn't it? It knows. <laughs> what do you mean it knows? Graveyard lilies, the rot. It doesn't matter how much you paint over it, it's not going to change anything, she said. Anton had heard about the power of ghosts from books and films, but it was nothing like the real thing. He sought cover behind a couch as she hurled plates and bowls, creating a maelstrom of porcelain shards in the air. Glass shattered. He stumbled with his words, unable to think of anything that would calm her fury. She screamed a guttural wail that he was afraid could be heard in the entire apartment block. She hurled the toaster at the blackening wall. I hate it here! Her eyes blazed. She destroyed the entire window ledge garden in seconds, pulling out a clump of lilies and smashing them. As a pipe burst below the sink, the soil and the water splashed mud all over the kitchen floor. It was over within minutes. Then she left him there alone in the chaos. Anton didn't replenish the window box garden. The police stopped investigating Jessica's disappearance at the same time his friends and family stopped knocking on his door. Anton knew that there was only so much they could do. Jess was one among hundreds of missing girls. When autumn approached, Jess began to brood. As the leaves crinkled and the air grew chill, her manifestations became more frequent and longer-lasting. She'd sit on the couch and stare at the door or out of the window for hours, unmoving. Anton took little notice of her increased discomfort. He delighted in her increased company, and yet he took care not to voice this. They sat together on the kitchen counter, staring at the reddening sky through the window. It was twilight, a time of day when the skeletal autumn trees seemed to stand straining for that last breath of light before nightfall. It was Anton's favourite time of the day, and for the first time in his life he was able to share this with someone else. He smiled warmly at Jess, always careful to avoid her eyes, but she didn't return the gesture. She was eyeing him appraisingly. I've been thinking about things, she said. About? I've had a lot of time to think over the past months, and I think I was looking for something more when I walked to the pier. The night I didn't come home. Do you know what it was that you were looking for? he asked. It was something in the music that made me realise there was something more out there, something that would transcend life and sadness, like an answer to every question I've always wanted to ask. I just knew that it would be there, and everything would be all right. But it wasn't? No, it wasn't. I'm still stuck here, in this flat. I didn't understand that at first, and it's something I've been thinking about for a while now. Anton usually avoided all mention of Jessica's disappearance because it upset her and caused her to vanish for days on end. He chewed in his words before answering, Have you come up with anything? He wished he could take her hand. Yeah, I think so. I think I was supposed to come find you, she said. 
It was the last thing he expected her to say, and he repeated it in his head a few times, as if trying to find a different meaning in her words. What do you mean? I think you are supposed to come with me, wherever it is I'm going. And you know that for certain? That if I go with you to wherever it is we're going, we're, we're going to find this answer, or, or whatever it is we're supposed to find? Yes, she said without hesitation. Anton opened his mouth to reply, then stopped. What was he going to say? That he wasn't ready? His breath caught in his chest and he looked towards Table Mountain in the distance in order to focus his eyes on something else. You want me to go with you? he asked tentatively. Of course I want you to go with me, Auntie. It's always been you and me, she said with uncharacteristic sweetness. Do you think you love me? Perhaps. Besides, we'll have forever to find out. He grinned and balled his fists. This was the moment he had been waiting for. He could feel the sweat beginning to moisten the palms of his hands. Now, he asked. She nodded, as if spurring on a child. Prompted by Jess, who remained sitting on the kitchen counter swinging her legs back and forth, Anton crawled to the edge of the window, his feet giddy and elated at the same time, something he had been deprived of his whole life. The mountain was totally obscured by darkness, and for an instant... He regretted not being able to say goodbye. Like a child leaning over a pool too deep for him, he looked down. He couldn't see the bottom. He dived. Inside the apartment, the door with a toxic green warning sign swung closed. The music began. I've known a woman or two like that. And thank you for letting us hear the story, Sally. And thank you, Kenny Park, for reading Apartment 415. Kenny Park, trained as an actor at what is now the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, he later moved into video editing, doing mostly TV, but also the odd music video, feature drama, and documentary. All of it, he maintains, is just storytelling. His most recent broadcast was a culture show special on prehistoric art for the BBC. The documentary feature, The Bridge Rising, will hit cinemas next year. Much of his video work can be found online, and I'll post a few of the links on our homepage at TalesToTerrify.com and on our Facebook page, which, as we speak, hovers just a few likers in the vicinity of 1,000. Our second short tale this evening is a cautionary story of youth and angst, and it's by Mr. Brendan Detzner. Brendan is a Chicagoan, a teacher and writer, whom I have known for quite a few years. First, from the elder days, the Twilight Tales era, when weekly Chicago writers such as John Everson, Gene Wolfe, Richard Schwedick, Jody Lynn Nye, Marty Munt, Joe Bonensinger, Tina Jens, the list goes on, of those who weekly came by the Red Lion Pub, 
and read their tales, those tales new in print and those that had just rolled off the printer. Heady days. And Brendan? Brendan was one of us, one of us. Gabba gabba hey. Well, for the last several years, Brendan has run Bad Grammar Theater, a monthly writer's reading group that meets at Powell's Bookstore on the south side of Chicago. And here, from Mr. Detzner's files, is Two Nights Only. It was only after his mother forbid him from attending the magic show that Marty decided that he'd had no choice but to go. It was a small miracle that he was able to scrape together the ten bucks it cost to get a ticket. His mom gave him five bucks a week, and it rarely lasted more than three days in his pocket. He sometimes blamed himself for that and felt guilty, and sometimes blamed his mother and felt angry. Five bucks wasn't enough money for anything. Of course it vanished. Marty could control himself. He did 40 push-ups every morning before he went to school, on his knuckles, on the concrete floor in the basement of his house. He did exactly as much homework as he wanted to. He never failed a class. But money was hard. He'd fallen behind early in the week, when he'd lent his friends some money to get cigarettes, and he'd had to skip lunch for a couple of days to get even again. The theater downtown wasn't the kind of place where you'd expect to see a magic act. It showed second-run movies. It got rented out for weddings. The historical society did bake sales to try and get the money to fix it up more. Marty got there just as the sun was setting. John the Magician, the sign said. That was all it said. He left two hours later. The sun was gone now. It was rude somehow, the way it just vanished. His clothes were soaked in sweat. His eyes were bloodshot. His knees hurt. He walked slowly, like a drunk trying to hide it. He was terrified. He was also exhilarated. He wanted to do it again. He walked home slowly. He had to stop three times and sit down to let his legs rest. It gave him time to think. He knew he wasn't crazy. He wondered if anyone would believe him if he tried to tell them what happened that night. Maybe they'd think he was crazy. Probably they would just ignore him. It was like a dream. Nobody wants to hear about somebody else's. This was finished. Unless he went back. It was midnight when he made it to the house. His mother was up. He could see the TV set flickering. He went inside. She was wearing her bathrobe, sitting on the couch but not relaxing, leaning forward towards the screen like she were balancing on a trapeze and on the verge of falling forward. There was no way of telling how she'd react. Marty's mom didn't do punishments. She'd yell or cry or refuse to speak to him or get revenge drunk the following night. 
spin the wheel. She leaned back and relaxed as he entered the house. She kept staring at the television. Marty did a little jump across the living room to minimize the time he blocked her view of the screen. He pushed open his bedroom door. He felt it coming before it came, inhaled sharply just as she started talking. When your father did this, he'd at least bring home beer. If he were smart, he'd let her have that and go to bed. He turned around. (laughs) Living with you, he needed it. She smiled from her perch. He tried to smile back, but he could feel his heart sinking already, could feel his control slipping away. I don't think you were helping the situation, genius. Still smiling. Always smiling. Uh, Well, you were the one who married him. Yeah, that one was my fault. Listen, I want to tell you something, just in case you haven't figured it out already. I'm not coming after you anymore. If you want to run around all night with your goddamn friends doing whatever, fine. You're an adult. Worrying about you has gotten me exactly shit in my life, and I'm done with it. Marty was still smiling, too. He at least had that much. He could keep it from showing on his face. Fine, he said. He went into his room and slammed the door shut. Marty collapsed onto his bed. He was furious. He was exhausted. He felt sorry for himself. None of this was new. It was like a song that wouldn't stop playing on the radio, even though you were sick of it. The thing about his mother was that you believed what she said. Even if you yelled back at her, you walked away wondering if maybe she had a point. Like the reason she felt like shit was because the world was shit, and if you felt good, it was only because you didn't know any better. Except she didn't know everything. If he got up right now and tried to tell her what had happened to him tonight, she'd laugh and would not believe him. And she'd be absolutely wrong. He made a decision. He knew he was being rash. He didn't care. He didn't want to spend another night in this house. The next day, he went back to the theater. It was late. The box office was empty and the curtains were drawn. He went in, walked through an empty lobby, through the gateway with the angels in gold trim above it. He sat down in the back row. There were a few other people in the audience, all sitting alone. All Marty could see of them was the backs of their heads. The front of the stage was a long, gentle arc that extended softly into the audience. A short man with a constipated expression was standing on stage next to a black wooden box. The box was the size of a coffin and stood upright like a doorway. The man on stage was wearing a tuxedo. There was a top hat on the ground about a foot in front of him. He spoke in a booming, unamplified voice. He had a strong but obviously fake accent. The nationality he was trying to imitate seemed to change from sentence to sentence. John the Magician. 
At this time, I require a volunteer. Marty stood up and waved his hands. John pointed at him. Come here, please. Marty ran towards the stage. The lights were much brighter on stage than they had appeared from the audience. He could feel the eyes on him. He could hear his own heartbeat, his breathing. Enter the box. Marty took a deep breath and went into the box. There was a white blast of noise as the door swung shut, and suddenly he was somewhere else. It was dark. He was surrounded by empty space. A siren was ringing in his ears, shaking his body. The sound had scared him the first time, but didn't bother him now. He was falling. That still scared him. He'd screamed last time, but he'd told himself he wouldn't this time. He fell faster and faster. He felt the pressure build on the underside of his body, the soles of his feet and his groin and his armpits slowly becoming more painful. He felt his body begin to warp in the face of the pressure. He realized that he was going to die. Last time, he had been pulled to safety at the very last moment, just before his bones broke or his skin began to peel off. That wasn't going to happen again. He was stranded. His body would break. It would flatten. He realized he was screaming. And he was back on stage, boards under his feet, people clapping politely, lights everywhere. His heart was beating so hard it felt like it was trying to escape his ribcage. He was standing where the black hat, which was now sitting on top of his head, had been. The magician's hand was on the scruff of his neck. Only to reappear! Marty's ears were ringing. He could hardly hear the words. He stumbled off stage and sat back down in the front row. John drew rings of fire in the air. He made a horse appear from nowhere and then turned it into a bat, which then disappeared itself. He was a terrible showman. He just did one trick after another, without introducing any of them or making any kind of connection at all with his audience. Soon he was finished. He did his last trick, nodded almost imperceptibly, and waited for everyone to get the idea and leave. Marty stayed seated until everyone else was gone. Then he approached the stage. The man in the black suit was standing perfectly still. <sighs> I wanted to hear more about the offer you made last night. The man was silent and perfectly still. Marty kept talking. You're really... <clears throat> it's really magic? It is, said the magician. And you'll... John interrupted. If you become my assistant, I would teach you all my secrets. In return, you would devote yourself to serving me to the exclusion of everything else. Marty took a deep breath. <sighs> All right, I'll do it. 
your family, your friends at school. You would never speak to them again. I understand. John nodded. Excellent. The van needs loading. He took Marty backstage. The van was parked in the lot behind the theater. It was nothing special. It was a dark blue passenger van. It had Florida plates. It had rust up around the left rear wheel well. The props were already loaded into boxes. The magician showed Marty where they were and left. This couldn't be all there was to it. Marty decided that this was some kind of a test, to see if he would do what he was told. So he loaded boxes. It took longer than he thought it would. He found himself thinking about his mom. He never had to deal with her again, never had to talk to her. As far as she was concerned, it would be like he had evaporated. He wondered if she'd been telling the truth, if she really wouldn't care. One phone call, he decided. He'd tell her he was alive and that he was leaving and that would be it. He put down the box he was carrying and took his cell phone out of his pocket. Marty, goddammit, where the hell are you? His tongue froze in his mouth. Marty, you know what? Do what you want. I'm running away with the magic show, Mom. The words came out without his having thought about them. I'm not coming home. There was silence on the other end. He tried to imagine her face. Maybe she was smiling. Fucker. He hung up, put the phone back in his pocket, and finished loading the van. The magician was sitting perfectly still in the green room, resting. He was not a human being. He looked like one, and had worked hard at learning how to act like one, but he was not. He could hear Marty's phone call like it were a bell ringing on a clear day. It would be wrong to say that he was disappointed. Frustrated would be more accurate. It would have been useful to have an assistant, someone who could do as he was told. The question was, what to do now? Imagine a fly buzzing around your ear. A problem you have to solve. The magician came back into the room just as Marty was finishing up. The last item he had to load was the black box. Marty crouched down and attempted to lift it. Stop, John said. Marty stood back up. John opened the door to the box. He looked at Marty expectantly. Marty remembered that he was being tested and went in. John slammed the door shut. Marty was surrounded by darkness, surrounded by noise. He was falling, accelerating. He closed his eyes and breathed deeply. He was being tested. He was brave. He was strong. He could control himself. Marty's mother arrived at the theater. She saw a man in a tuxedo slamming shut the rear door of a blue passenger van. Excuse me, I, I'm looking for my son. Gone, 
said the man in the tuxedo. He had a strange accent. I beg your pardon? Gone. I got rid of him. Marty's mother blocked John's path. She came just short of pushing him. Now you listen to me! He looked up and met her eyes. She stopped talking. There was nothing there to attack. It was like staring at a brick wall. When he spoke again, his accent wasn't there. He's gone. It's all done. The man touched her shoulder, and she stepped out of the way without thinking about what she was doing. The van left the parking lot. Thank you for that, Brendan. Brendan's most recent book, Scarce Resources, 18 Weird Stories, can be found on Lulu or on Amazon as both a paperback or an e-book. As mentioned, you can connect with Brendan by clicking on the link at the TalesToTerrify.com homepage. Two Nights Only was read tonight by an old friend of Tales to Terrify, Joe Samarco. I think this is Joe's eighth or ninth evening of giving voice to tales here in the nook. Keep them coming, Joe. Joe is originally from Los Angeles, but now lives in my old branch of the Sylvan East, Pennsylvania. He considers himself a geek with a soft place in his heart for genre fiction and PS3 gaming. As mentioned, he's narrated a few dozen stories spread among the Starship Sofa and us here in the District of Wonders, and is focused on becoming a professional voice actor for animated films and gaming. So, if you need a voice, touch base with Joe, the which you can do by connecting with him on the site I've posted on our homepage, TalesToTerrify.com, as if you didn't know. I ask you now to be upstanding, to gather your things, your wraps, your mittens, your sweaters, and prepare yourself. But, 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 before you go, and as you consider the walk home, I have a short, chilly little poem for you. It's by Eugene Field. Eugene Field was a popular humorist and newspaper man. He was often called the poet of childhood. He was born in 1850 in St. Louis, Missouri, he worked as a journalist on several Missouri newspapers, and in 1881, he moved his family to Denver, where he wrote for the Denver Tribune. In 1883, he received an offer to move to Chicago, where he wrote a column entitled Sharps and Flats for the Chicago Morning News until his untimely death in 1895 of heart failure. Here is Eugene Fields' The Night Wind. Have you ever heard the wind go, you? It is a pitiful sound to hear. It seems to chill you through and through with a strange and speechless fear. Tis the voice of the night that broods outside when folk should be asleep. 
And many and many's the time I've cried to the darkness, brooding far and wide over the land and the deep. Whom do you want, O lonely night, that you wail the long hours through, and the night would say, in its ghostly way, you, you, you. My mother told me long ago, when I was a little tad, that when the night went wailing so, somebody had been bad. And then, when I was snug in bed, whither I had been sent, with the blankets pulled up round my head, I'd think of what my mother'd said and wonder what boy she meant. And who's been bad today, I'd ask, of the wind that hoarsely blew, and the voice would say, in its meaningful way, You, you, you. That this was true, I must allow. You'll not believe it, though. Yes, though, I'm quite a model now. I was not always so. And if you doubt what things I say, suppose you make the test. Suppose when you've been bad some day, and up to bed are sent away from mother and the rest, suppose you ask, who has been bad? And then you'll hear what's true. For the wind will moan in its ruefulest tone, You, you, you. I have no idea who read that, but I hope you enjoyed it as you redonned your traveling gear and prepared for the night. Oh, yes, take note. When you leave the nook and head a few feet down to the corner, notice there is a wind that lingers there. It stays through summer and into fall and winter. It rounds the year, blowing hot, then cool, then frigid. I don't take it personally. It's just the geometry of streets and trees. It's the lake, and it's Chicago. Once you leave that corner and head south or east or any direction, toward the shore or west and into the district of wonders, it's gone. If you go that way tonight, watch for it. Be aware. Just don't be tempted when you hear it, when you feel it, to ask of it, who? <laughs> so... For all of you passing through the detritus of all hallows, take in the sights and the remnants. There's something somehow even spookier about a quiet night where rotting pumpkins gurn in their juices. Disarticulated cardboard skeletons lie twisted in the rat-run trash, and former ghosts flap in the branches by breezes off the lake. Well, you'll pass through it all. And then you'll be home. But those visions of the Halloween just past will certainly yield some very pleasant dreams. Hmm?
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. And their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.